It's time for the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a conversation with the historian Peter Kenez. He's well known for his work on modern European and Russian history, including a number of books on the Soviet Union. But Peter hasn't just written about some of the pivotal events of the 20th century. He's lived them. He was a child in Hungary when it came under Nazi control during World War II, and he was a youth when the country fell under Soviet domination in 1948. He was 19 when Hungary attempted to throw off Soviet rule in the bloody revolution of 1956, and when the Soviets crushed that uprising, he fled the country with a wave of Hungarian refugees. He made his way to the United States, attended Princeton and Harvard, and eventually took up a position at UC Santa Cruz, where he's been teaching for the last 45 years. Peter recounted the early part of his biography in his memoir, Varieties of Fear, Growing Up Jewish Under Nazism and Communism. He's led a very interesting life, and we'll talk about it today. We'll also discuss a new book he's working on about the Holocaust. Stay with us. You say in your memoir that your first remembered conversation is you at roughly the age of four years old asking your mother, what is suicide? Yes, well, I think of myself as a morbid person, and that's uh, an appropriate way to begin. Do you have any uh, memory of why you would have asked your mother uh, at such a young age what suicide was? Well, uh, this must have been in um, 1942, uh, which is an appropriate thing to discuss death, um, though the really exciting year came a couple of years later when death was was very palpable. You were seven years old in 1944. Yes. When things really got bad in Hungary uh, for Jews and for others. Yes, uh, March 19th, 1944, Hungary, an ally of Germany, came to be occupied. And the reason for that is because um, uh, the Germans were concerned of negotiations which the Horthy government carried out with the Allies. And the, the sad irony here is that if Hungary would have been a more loyal ally, the Jews would have survived. Mm. If Hungary had been a more loyal ally... Because the uh, Germans intervened when the government of Hungary attempted to part company with them. Exactly. <laughs> and this was a serious danger because this would have uh, uh, endangered their, uh, their logistics. Well, let's go back to that day, March 19th, 1944. This is the day that the, the Nazis actually invaded Hungary uh, to try to rein in the government. Uh, and you have a clear memory of that day, yes? Yes. Yes, I do have a, a clear memory. Um, it was a Sunday. My father, who was a great sportsman and uh, enthusiast for hiking, uh, took my cousin and me for a hike in the Buddha Mountains, and we saw the air armada. And uh, we, of course, didn't know uh, what was what. But uh, as we went back to Budapest, to my grandparents' apartment, it was all over, uh, we knew. And uh, I 
next day my father went to work in my grandfather's printing establishment, which was still functioning. And uh, as he was coming home, uh, we lived in the suburb of Budapest. Uh, as he was coming home, a Hungarian Nazi got on the streetcar and said, Jews, get off. And so he did. Now, how do I know this? Because uh, he, oddly enough, with other prominent Jews, he was not prominent, who had been picked up by the Nazis, were interned in a suburb of Budapest. Uh, and he was able to send a message out. And we know that at the end of April, he went to Auschwitz with the very first group who were deported. And I know this because someone who was with him um, all the way in Auschwitz and after Auschwitz, because he survived Auschwitz, uh, came back and talked to my mother uh, in uh, spring of 1945. So the day after the Nazis invaded Hungary, your father, who was on his way home from work, simply disappeared. I mean, as far as you and your mother knew. That's right. It took uh, some days before we found out what happened to him. What happened? At that point, you didn't know about Auschwitz, I assume. Of course not. You didn't know about the death camps. Well, this is an, an interesting question. What do people know? And it has always seemed to me that the knowing and the willingness to know is inseparable. We know what we want to know. Uh, now, of course, as a seven-year-old, uh, I was enthusiastic about the Allies bombing us. Um, I remember clearly as a six-year-old uh, learning about the Allied invasion of Sicily. Uh, I mean, it was an interesting phenomenon that those people, those airplanes who were bombing us were on my side. And you knew that? Oh, yes. You knew that as as a Jewish child, you were in danger. Oh, indeed. I e mean, Even at that young uh, age. Well, once, I mean, everything changed mm -hmm. on, uh, on March 19th. Um, uh, immediately, the Jews were uh, compelled to wear a yellow star and uh, compelled to live in uh, so-called Jewish houses. And this, for a while, was uh, uh, in lieu of a ghetto. And the reason for this is because uh, the Hungarian government believed that since the Jews controlled the world, the Allies would not bomb the ghetto, but would bomb the rest of Budapest. Needless to say, um, this uh, reasoning uh, was not uh, correct. So they, they allowed Jews to stay in various locations for a while. in Budapest, almost as human shields against well, the Allied bombing. You can put it this way. You can put it this way. <laughs> um, but um, you and your mother, that day that your, your father didn't come home, everything changed, and she and you fled to your grandparents' house in, in Budapest. Took the streetcar. Took a streetcar the next day. Well, uh, my father did not come back on the 20th of March. Uh, my mother telephoned. We had no telephone. We had to walk to a, a pub. And uh, next day, 
uh, we took the streetcar and went back to Budapest. The interesting thing is that the uh, family moved in to our house, and the descendants of this family are still living in that house. Oh, really? Wow. We went back to, to uh, my, my wife. Uh, I wanted to show her the, the house where I was a little boy, and uh, a nice chap came out and said, are you looking for someone? And I said, no, 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 we just just wanted to show my wife that we lived here. And uh, so he took us in and we saw the house. This was in, I don't know, 2006. And so his family had lived in that house now for uh, 40 years. But you had vacated your family house really on a moment's notice. Exactly taking what you could with you, but not most of your possessions, right. I assume. And um, as happened in many European countries where where the Jews were driven out or deported, some locals took over the house. They just moved in. <laughs> there <laughs> is this sad uh, anecdote, is that the uh, uh, Hungarian Jewish man comes back from camp and encounters a Christian friend. And the Christian friend asks, uh, uh, how are you? And he says, well, uh, I lost my family. I lost my house. And the only thing that remained is the suit which you are wearing. I want to laugh, but I guess I shouldn't. Well, why not? It's funny. <laughs> oh, boy. But you had a moment like that in a way when after the war, you and your mother went back to this home and found this family living in it. Yes. And uh, that must have been very awkward. Well, look, I mean, it wasn't their fault. I mean, it, I mean, they, I mean, they were not responsible. But did they offer they to move out? They didn't do anything bad. Did they offer to move out and well, move it we, back? We, we had no interest in moving back. Mm. Mm. So, no, I mean, that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to, to criticize them. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, why not? I mean, that's. I mean, they were not responsible for what was happening. They didn't chase the Jews away. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Well, meanwhile, during um, that period of time after uh, March 1944, when you moved to Budapest uh, and the ultimate liberation of Budapest, um, you lived in this apartment building at your grandparents. I mean, it, in an apartment where your yes. grandparents lived. And you write in your memoir that... Um, as as more and more family members and uh, relatives of various kinds sort of streamed in, uh, taking shelter there, ultimately over 40 people were living in a five-room apartment? Yes, and uh, the Jews were being taken away by that time in a disorganized and haphazard fashion. And what seemed to give protection is, of course... Uh, Roald Wallenberg, who uh, was a genuine hero, who came to Hungary with the explicit purpose of saving Jews. And he was there in Budapest. And he was in Budapest, yes. He was a Swedish um, diplomat, yes. yes? He was a Swedish diplomat. In granting um, um, papers. So-called Schutzpass, which was supposed to be a visa, which, of course, nobody took that seriously. However, the the Nazi government, and this is the Salashi government, they were, were crazies, expected international recognition and consequently um, were willing to uh, 
collaborate with Wallenberg to the extent of establishing a part of Budapest where there were so-called protected houses. And my mother moved in to this, one of these apartments. I had scarlet fever, and so I stayed behind with my grandmother. Now it turned out that the Hungarian Nazis recognized that uh, international recognition was not forthcoming, and these protected houses weren't protected any longer, and people were taken to the bank of the Danube and shot. Um, and so my mother actually returned. Uh, and um, ironically, this building um, was made into a field hospital, where, um, so, I mean, after all, the, the, the fight was already going on around Budapest, and uh, the kind of uh, hospital which it was, uh, it was done in the cellar, they were simply amputating. This was a hospital for Hungarian soldiers who were fighting against That's the right. Russians. That's right. Um, on the I, side of the Nazis. I, with scarlet fever, I was in a hospital <laughs> without ever moving. But you were under quarantine. Yes, and, uh, there and was that, a red uh, um, piece of paper. Well, actually, it was more pink than red. It was put on the door, and uh, and that was a protection. But the the fact that uh, this uh, this apartment of yours, you know, had this posted notice that there was scarlet fever there actually protected you from and her, others who who, who realized and that others who this stayed is, there. Uh, this is a, a better deal. So people chose to stay with you because yes. the uh, the Nazis were staying away from this quarantined room. But you mentioned that uh, the basement uh, of this uh, apartment building where you lived in Budapest was turned into a kind of makeshift hospital by the yes. Hungarian military. Um, and it got pretty grisly. Um, as you say, a lot of amputations. And at some point they were just throwing limbs out into the yard. Yes, and you, as a child, had to step over these yes, body parts. Yes, but that was that was the least frightening. The, I mean, as compared to uh, the Nazis coming and taking us, uh, uh, such matters as a as a as an abandoned arm or 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 a, or a leg uh, uh, thrown out and covered by snow and ice. Um, no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> That's. <laughs> well, what was the scariest moment for you? The scariest moment for me uh, was that um, um, I cannot remember the exact date, unfortunately. It must have been after October 15th, but I'm not sure. And uh, uh, the Nazis, Hungarian Nazis, because all the picking up of Jews was done by Hungarians. I mean, the, there were much too few Germans. Uh, came and came into this building where everybody was Jewish, said that uh, you must come down and you have 15 minutes. And so we went down and we were marched uh, with our hands up on the main street and uh, were uh, slowly herded into a big square and we heard machine gun fire and uh, we had no idea what is, of course, I mean, we were not told. And uh, my mother said goodbye. And uh, after a while, we were herded on into the synagogue. The synagogue, the largest synagogue in Europe, happens to be in Budapest, which was the 
product of the late 19th century where Hungarian Jews were optimistic about their future and built a larger synagogue. And there we were kept for days. And we had no idea what's what. And then at one point we were said, you can go home. Why? What? What was going on? I, I don't know to this day. Did something like that leave a mark on you? I mean, they say that... Um, I don't think so. No? I don't believe in post-traumatic body stress. Stress disorder? Stress disorder. Not for anybody or in your case? I think we overdo it. I mean, this may sound uh, silly. I regard myself as an optimist. Oh, you do? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, that is, I believe that I have lived in an age... There is no other historical moment that I would have rather lived than the one in which I live. Um, and uh, I attribute my optimism is that after a slow beginning, my life got better and better. Hmm. I had low expectations. <laughs> well, as a seven-year-old, you saw some of the worst events of the 20th century. And then things got better, and then even better. though there were still problems. I mean, uh, this this idea on, on uh, January 17th, when I saw my first Russian, this notion, I will live. This is when the Russians liberated, uh, yes. was it Buddha or Pesht? Well, it was Pesht. It was Pesht. Uh, uh, in Buddha, the fighting went on until the middle of February. But the um, uh, the Pesht part of Budapest was liberated by the Russians, and you were there when they arrived. Oh, um, absolutely. You got to be well, the kid who ran down the streets not... saying the Russians are coming. <laughs> yes? Well, it's interesting. My cousin remembers this <laughs> differently. Uh, Maybe a memory like that is collective property, right? <laughs> a lot of kids probably remember having done exactly that. But um, that must have been a, a great moment uh, to see the the Nazis driven out. Yes. Yes, I mean it's. I mean it's not so much that the Nazis are doing, but that I will live. I will live. Mm. I mean, as a seven-year-old, this is a meaningful mm. concept. Mm. Live or not live. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Uh, um, and after that, you see everything is uh, well, okay. So we have lice. So we have nothing to eat. So there is no water because the water main has been broken by uh, uh, bombing and. Well, that's okay. Mm. You know, I expressed a little surprise when you called yourself an optimist. It's because um, having read the memoir and uh, seen the portrait you paint of yourself as sort of downcast and um, tending toward what I would have called a pessimistic appraisal of uh, of human existence. For instance, you're you're the guy who, on a romantic evening with your with the love of your life at the time, Marika said to her, the stars are dreadful, for they remind us of our ultimate loneliness. Nothing matters, and we are all alone. <laughs> well, isn't that true? <laughs> I mean, we, we come to this world with a, how should I say, with a contract, is that uh, life will last a certain length, and memento mori, uh, that's, that's part of our existence, that's part of our being human. Mm. Humans are mortal. Mm. So you're a realist, but an optimist. Well, I'm an optimist in the sense that uh, I think life is better and better if you start out with the assumption that what makes life worth living is 
understanding, knowledge, breadth of vision, breadth of experience. And in this respect, our horizons have broadened exponentially. Well, let me challenge that just a bit because, you know, you, I think a lot of people probably thought after World War II that uh, Western civilization had learned its lesson and that we might not see genocides again. It's never occurred to me. That never occurred to you. I mean, why not? I mean, there were no lessons. I mean, uh, I mean the next uh, dreadful event will be different from the last dreadful event and because every dreadful event is different. Uh, uh, there is there is no analogy between what happened with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and what happened to the Jews, except that both show uh, boundless inhumanity. But, mm. I mean, this is not a lesson. This we knew at the outset. I mean, nobody should have been surprised. I mean, uh, and anybody thinks that uh, now uh, this was the last genocide, and, and they close their eyes. Mm. So in what sense do things get better then? If, if In this sense, our visions have broadened. Hmm. Now, you may say that uh, this is not your ultimate value, but it's mine. Understanding the possibility of experiencing, the possibility of seeing, the possibility of knowing, that is my ultimate value. Hmm. And in this respect... I've been fortunate. Now, from this it follows that if the present is better than the past, the future must be even better. <laughs> now, that sounds like faith to me, but you're not a religious person. No, I never had a, never had transcendental craving. So why should history follow a, an upward path? History perhaps does not. Uh, human beings are not getting any better. Uh, that's That's not my point. Um, technology is getting better, and technology matters. Technology matters enormously. But the, uh, the, the Nazis were big fans well, of technology. You see, I have a pacemaker. Yeah. I had cancer, which was uh, treated with radiation. I would have been dead long ago. Mm. And if we started with the assumption that to live is good, this is technology. Hmm. What about the other kind of technology? Which one? Well, the like? destructive technologies. Which one do you have in mind? You know, there's so many. Um, but right now, um, people can be killed more easily than ever before by any number of means. And True. in some places, they are True. being killed. In but large machetes numbers. will do the job. Mm. I mean, after all, uh, uh, large groups of human beings in the past have been exterminated. And there's nobody left to tell the story of the Albigensians. Uh, um, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Unlike the Jews who are here to tell their story in, in spades, because mm. they are articulate. <laughs> and this is, of course, uh, I mean, the, the, the sad thing that we know so little about the gypsies. Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, we know so little from the inside. Mm. Uh, all we know are outsiders. The gypsy elite disappears in the in the mainstream. Yeah. Now there was this this moment of joy that you talked about when the when the Russians came through and you realized you were going to live. But I'm wondering about that period afterwards when when people take stock of all the losses. Um, 
you found out after this yes. that your father was never going to come back. Yes, uh, a few months later. And, 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 and up it, to that point, we expected him to come back. And his story just seems so tragic to me. He survived Auschwitz. Yes. Then what happened? They marched them um, through uh, Austria, probably, though I'm not sure. The Germans. Probably, yes. As, as Auschwitz was... Auschwitz uh, was closed down. It was closed the, down. They were the, fleeing the, the Red November. Army. Yes. Yeah, they were fleeing the Red Army, and so they yes. marched these yes. remaining prisoners. Uh, probably... The goal must have been to Mauthausen. And it was in January 1945 that he was shot on the road. For what reason? Well, presumably he couldn't walk. I don't know. Oh. And and you and your mother learned of this then? Yes. A few months later when the man who was with him uh, came back. And told the story. And told the story. That's my source. And and you grew up with a lot of... um, fellow Jewish children who were missing fathers, missing fathers and mothers. Of course. In 1944, the Jewish population of Hungary was over 800,000. Now, of this, about 200,000 survived. And in Budapest, where about 100,000 survived. So then, when, for example, after the war, uh, we moved to a little town um, where uh, one-tenth of the Jews survived. You describe fairly matter-of-factly people putting their lives back together again, rebuilding. But what was the the effect of all these absences? Pain. Uh, Even in my 20s, I dreamt of my father. I I very much identified with my father. And uh, everything which was good in me, I saw my father. And you you look like him, too. <laughs> I saw the photograph in your book. And, and that's what my mother thought. <laughs> and so my poor stepfather, who was a perfectly nice man, could never live up to it. Hmm. Well. Hmm. And I was grossly unfair to him, and I am sorry. For a couple of years there, then, from uh, late 44 through 1948, right? Hungary was more or less democratic. But that is that. Uh, I, I wrote a book on Hungary between 1944 oh, and 1948. Oh, you did? I haven't read that, I confess. It is, uh, <laughs> it's uh, called Hungary between uh, Nazis and Stalin. Um, so I I researched that there, and it's uh, there was hope, hope which was gradually dissipated. Forty five was more optimistic than forty six, and mm-hmm. forty six was more optimistic than forty seven. Mm-hmm. And by the end of forty seven, it was clear that uh, this is not going to go. That Hungary would be absorbed into the Soviet bloc and yeah. become a satellite state. Yes. And be under very strict sort of Stalinist, communist rule. So you went from this period of totalitarianism under the Nazis uh, to a brief fling with democracy and then um, well, more totalitarianism. Well, so fling with democracy as, uh, as, uh, as hope. Hope for democracy. As, as, as hope that it is, that it is possible to, to escape. 
Now, you're still very young at this time, in 1948, when the Soviets more or less cracked down. I regarded myself as a little communist. <laughs> you had sort of fallen in love with the Russians because they liberated Budapest. Yes. And so you, were, you thought communism was a good system, right? Not for me personally. It's uh -huh. for the Hungarians. For the Hungarians. I, personally, I knew it's not good for me. Oh, really? Why well, wasn't it good for you? Well, look, I mean, why should it be that what is uh, good for the people is good for me and vice versa? I mean, uh, you know, people delude themselves by believing that their self-interest is the same as the community interest. And and uh, if I struggle against, um, I don't know, building a halfway house next to me, that is for the common good. No, uh, my interest is different from the interest of the community. But you, you were pro-communism, but it wasn't probably going to be I good for you. I believe that communism has the future. Right, right. Yeah, but you thought it wouldn't be good for you, and the reason for that was, was why? Because I wanted to escape. I wanted to see the world. And you, we're talking about, you're still a kid. Yes, but I dreamt of what is going on beyond the borders. When did you start dreaming about that? Oh, there is the big world, and, and I am... I am locked up here. After 48, we were locked up. After 48, when the, the Soviets really took over in Hungary. But when I came to this country in 1950, well, I arrived in 57, I regarded myself as a communist. Mm -hmm. You still regarded yourself as a communist. Well, uh, I had a different understanding than the American people what communism meant. By communism, I meant that communism, socialism with the human face, mm -hmm. socialism the variety of Imre Noid, socialism the variety of Dubček, of Gorbachev. Now, in my old age, I recognized this was an illusion, and there is no third way, and, uh, and I was, well, I don't want to say foolish, but I was wrong about everything. And uh, I used to believe that the uh, planned economies are superior, and then I used to believe that, well, planned economies can be as good as private economies. And then I realized that, no, <laughs> planned economies are no good. Um, you just mentioned a few of the more liberal reformist uh, leaders uh, of the communist uh, the years. The third way, you see. Yes, Imre Noij of, of Hungary, Dubček of Czechoslovakia, and Gorbachev of, of uh, the Soviet Union. But... During those years, though, when um, the the Soviet takeover had happened and they were running things in Hungary, um, though in principle you were pro-communist, you actually said some things that were not politically correct and got you in some trouble. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. A classmate ratted you out for saying that the Russians were exploiting Hungary. Yes. And, and, and you were therefore excluded from a communist youth group. Yes. And there goes your career in the party, I suppose. Yes. If not for that, who knows? <laughs> well, uh, yes. Uh, um, um, it had, well, one consequence was my mother practically started to pack because she thought they would be deported. Mm. The other consequence was that uh, in 1955, I was not admitted to the university. You were classified. Um, they had several as classifications. Also class alien. I class alien. They had. Class alien you could be classified as a worker. Uh, what, a bourgeois or something? Yes, a peasant, uh, of course. A peasant. Intelligentsia. Uh, intelligentsia. And then you could be class alien. Class X. alien. So why were you classed as an alien? You were Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> no, Hungary was not a classless society. Well, uh, two reasons. My grandfather had a printing press, and my stepfather 
had an alcohol making factory. Of course, everything was national. A distillery. Yes. Ah. Everything was nationalized. Right. So, but nonetheless, you see, you you carry your class identity with you. But what's alien mean? Well, uh, presumed enemy. Presumed enemy. So what did it well, have to it do was with a kind of? Well, it was a consequence of affirmative action, <laughs> which, by the way, I believed in. But but an enemy not because I still sort of believe in. But an enemy not because of being Jewish, but no, an no, enemy no, no, because no, no. of being, to do with being Jewish. But because of being Absolutely. having money, yeah, having well, a business. Of course, we had no money. Well, I mean, having had everything a was nationalized. I mean, my stepfather went to work, physical labor. I mean, that was. I mean, he was a worker, but that didn't matter. But that was the reason for the aliens. Absolutely. Stamp. Absolutely. Having had a business. Absolutely. Um, what was the state of anti-Semitism under communist rule in Hungary? Well. Immediately after the war, there were uh, uh, pogroms, anti-Jewish pogroms. I personally was not aware. I cannot say that I suffered for being Jewish after 1945. We live in a Jewish uh, neighborhood in Budapest. Uh, I went to school where uh, more than half of my fellow students were Jewish. I, I cannot say that I... I suffered after 1945 for being Jewish. So there were pogroms. These were remnant Nazi elements uh, just taking revenge? Well, um, identifying Jews with communists. Great hatred for communists. And this identification was not as strange when you consider that all the top leaders between 1945 and 1953 were Jewish. The top leaders of the party in Hungary? Oh. The four major figures. So, so Rakosi, Geru, Rebai, Farkas, there were four Jews. And the, the great victim of the Hungarian perch trials was Laszlo Raik, who was not Jewish. Oh. Meanwhile, though, under the, the communist rule, though not as bad as the Nazis, I take it, there were new rounds of deportations, people were sent to yes. prison camps. These That's were right. all political purges of various kinds? Yes, of course. A large number of people went to dreadful camps, and people were deported in order to make room for the new working class who were streaming into the city. And people, uh, many of my friends, and and this was a, a, a constant, uh, very much in our minds, uh, this was up to 53, and these were the worst years. I'm planning to write a continuation of my book to be called The Gloomy Years of Communism. This is 48 to 53. 53 is when Stalin died. That's right. Mm. Um, and uh, people were deported, the deportation meaning that they were picked up in the middle of the night by trucks, taken into a village, and made them live in with the peasants, and as I say, I mean, uh, some of my friends who are still my friends who went through this deportation, and, and my good friend, uh, uh, he has been an anti-communist ever since. Hmm. In um, in fifty three, as you say, uh, Stalin died. Uh, there was some relaxation yes. of of the worst, you know, policies Absolutely. of the Stalin years. And Absolutely. you started to see some, some moves toward independence in uh, the Warsaw Pact nations like Hungary, Poland, uh, and yes. others. 
And by 1956, Hungary had a full-fledged independence movement going under the person you mentioned earlier, Imre Noyc. Well, uh, it was the direct consequence of the 20th Party Congress speech in uh, February uh, 1956, where Stalin was denounced. By Khrushchev? By Khrushchev. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of that was that um, how could the Hungarian Stalin remain and so this created a, a disjunction because uh, the Hungarian party, of course, could not repudiate what was going on in the Soviet Union. On the other hand, could not draw the consequences. And so the, the ruling elite could not rule. And I, I think these mixed signals was the, the real cause of the revolution. Mm. And then everything came to the surface, great loathing for Russians and communists. And, and it was uh, a genuine popular revolution, um, united people. Now, I have no doubt that this, this uh, unity would not have survived two months had, which is inconceivable, the revolution won, because different people had different ideas. But we were all together in, in loathing that system. So and I, even I, I mean, I wanted the system to collapse. Even you, the communist. Yes, but you see, Gorbachev was also a communist. Oh, yes, I understand. You're making a distinction between Stalinism and, and a more idealized form of communism. Yeah. Well, the belief that you can bring together social justice mm -hmm. and freedom. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be an illusion. Mm. But you were 19 years old in 1956. Yes. And, um, and 19 and a half. 19 and a half. And the Hungarians are rising up, asserting you know, their independence. And to I marched. And you marched. You were at some of the key demonstrations. You describe a major demonstration yes. in the book. This which, is, was the, which was the, really the, the beginning. This was a huge event. I mean, this, this yes. uh, was many, many years before... The Berlin Wall fell yes. and the Iron Curtain collapsed. And there's these Eastern European countries um, defying the Soviet Union, rising up and ultimately being quashed, you know, yes. violently. Which so, was, I mean, in retrospect, there was never any question. That it would happen. But, but there's this interesting moment when you were in this demonstration, but you decided you really weren't part of this crowd. Yes. Well, now, why was that? <laughs> First of all, I don't like to be in any crowd. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, in any uh, applause. Uh huh. Not I you. I have to break it up. <laughs> I, 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 I cannot attend uh, uh, commencement ceremonies. It's not for me. I, I, I am with the people from a distance. I, everything for the people, but not with the people. I mean, I, I wish them well, but I don't want to be there. And you've been like that from a very well, young age. I'm, I'm always skeptical when I think of my various ideas and and traits. Why am I the way I am and to what extent I can correlate this with experience? But let me try. Uh, <laughs> living in this little suburb, there was only one other Jewish child. And this sense that I am not one of them never went to kindergarten. Mm. Is 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 very deep down. That sense of apartness. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, 
as we say, the, the revolution started and was um, violently repressed by the by the Soviets, who actually rolled into Budapest in yes. tanks. Yes, and you were there. Yes, and and several thousand people were killed. Is that is that right? Yes, approximately. So once again, I mean, here in your very short life, you've seen this city invaded, you've seen warfare in the streets. You know. I was not afraid of my life. No. Uh, I, I retreated to the cellar and read Marx. You read Marx down there? Uh, well, because you see, I started to go to law school and we had assignment and I I, I hope to. Oh, I see. Back. You were doing I, your homework. Well, I was doing my homework. While the, while the tanks are firing out in the streets. That's right. <laughs> Good for I you. Did, I did come out because I wanted to go and see my girlfriend and and, and I did and there was still shooting and and... and and I did manage to see her. And Marika. Marika, yeah. But it wasn't long after that, Peter, that you decided really to um, join a, a lot of Hungarians who were leaving on mass. 200,000. 200,000 Hungarian yes. refugees. Well, of course, this was not a cross-section of the population. Mm. People who left were young, urban, better educated. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. For me, it came just at the right time. Had revolution come five years earlier, as a 14-year-old, I couldn't possibly have left on my own. Had the revolution come five years later, I would have had a career, I, and it would have been much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So it came just at the right moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the right thing to do. I never had any... However miserable I was in this country, I however great my homesickness was in the first year, uh, I never had any doubt that this was the right thing to do. Mm. So you and a, a However much I deplore current American politics, <laughs> well, we're gonna, still the right thing to do. I want to talk about your coming to America in just a moment, but first your escape from, from Hungary. Um, so you and a, and a small group um, hired a, a smuggler, and you struck out for the, the Austrian border. Yes. Um, crossing could not have been the easiest process well again uh, what we knew then and what i know now what we knew then is that they were shooting yeah and the border guards yes and i saw people being picked up mm -hmm. and uh, again it was a difficult night uh, in retrospect i know that it was the conscious policy of the regime to bring about consolidation by allowing the troublemakers to leave. I mean, I, I have no documentary evidence, but the fact that those very people who were picked up, whom I saw being picked up, the next morning I saw them, means that that's not the, the oh, Hungarian political uh -huh. police used to operate. Uh -huh. that, that's not there. So there was a wink if and a nod. If they wanted to prevent them, they could have. And, and you saw this group being picked up, so you took an alternate route and ended up sneaking across the border. Right. Well, that into was, Austria. Yes. That was the only way, of course. Sneaking, I mean, you know, we walked. I mean, that's... Oh, I didn't mean to make it sound like a bad thing. Well, no, no, no. I mean, that was no... I mean, how else? I mean... I made uh, it sound like an adventurous thing, which it was. And especially... It was. It was adventurous. It was. And it's interesting because I should say that in this memoir, you take a sort of wry and skeptical look at yourself, and you paint yourself as a not very adventurous and somewhat timid person. It's perfectly true. Perfectly true, but still, this was... Indeed, a uh, fearful. I mean, physically fearful. I mean, uh, my courage only is in uh, intellectual matters. 
Well, I don't. Uh, I mean, climbing some, trees where you can fall off. Well, sneaking, no. sneaking across the border Even where bicycling you bicycling seems dangerous. But you thought they were shooting people for fleeing Hungary, and yet you took. Well, that the, had to be done. It had to be done. You had to. I mean, otherwise, I would have no self-respect. If they would have caught me, and had to go back to Budapest, I would. Have, I tried. But not trying, that's. Uh, I would have a low regard for myself. You, you had to leave the woman you loved, though, Marika. Yes. Did you ever see her again? Oh, indeed. Uh, oh, you did. Never lost contact. Where did you? She stayed with us here, and we, when we go to Hung- when we went to Hungary several times, we stayed with her. When did you next see her then? After that. Well, the first time we went back with my wife. Um, we went back to Hungary in the summer of 1964, by which time I had American citizenship. So that's seven years later. Yes. Well, what was that like to come back with Very your wife exciting. to see your sweetheart, your ex-sweetheart? Very exciting. Yeah, not awkward. <laughs> well, uh, well, there were awkward moments. <laughs> yes, there were. There was some awkwardness, but uh, but I mean, after all, you don't want to lose any human contact. Mm. You don't want to lose a friend. Mm. You don't want to lose a girlfriend. Mm. My other girlfriend, Juji, is also a maintained contact. Well, oh, really? She yes. was previous to Marie. She's in the United States. Uh-huh. And I, I see her and we exchange. I mean, why not? Right. I mean, that's... Well, let's talk about coming to the U.S. So you were in Austria for a time where you managed... Waiting for her. Waiting for her. I yeah. could have come earlier. Mm-hmm. And you could have come earlier because there was a quota for refugees. Yes, and I was among the first. Uh, to come. Yes. And, and you eventually departed. Um, I, I guess you, would it be fair to say you came uh, almost in steerage? Uh, yes. <laughs> in a boat packed with refugees? Yes. It was a troop carrier without uh, the amenities that you associate with uh, uh, oceanic travel. Uh, there were no chairs, for example. There were bunk beds. And uh, hundreds of you packed into this transport ship. And you come into New York Harbor. And I, on the ship, I received a bag of oranges, which was confiscated at Ellis Island. (laughs) 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 Uh, And uh, we arrived, and uh, some orchestra played the Hungarian national anthem. And they took us to Camp Kilmer, which was, again, a military in, in New Jersey. Us. Yeah. And uh, I spent there only one night. I received my social security number, which obviously I still have. And uh, my uncle came for me. And You had an uncle uh, teaching at Princeton. Yes. And he took me to Princeton. And uh, I got on uh, a conveyor belt and I never fell off. <laughs> but you had been ambivalent about the U.S. I mean, it wasn't your... Uh, your chosen destination originally. I admired Americans. I didn't love them. Didn't love them. Now it's the other way. It seemed a little coarse, though, to you, didn't it, America? In your fantasies? Well, I mean, Europe was was home. England. Mm, England. This is not true of my thinking today. But uh, if everything would have been equal... And somebody offered me a scholarship to a, a British university. That's what I would have chosen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would have been wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would have been a mistake. 
Um, when you got to, to Princeton and, and stayed with your uncle, um, Miklos? Yes. He told you that he was not known to be Jewish. Indeed, he was not. That he had um, tried to pass... His wife did not know he was Jewish. His wife didn't know. Years later, in 1959, I married my wife, Penny, who at that time was Catholic. And Janice, who I actually liked very much, uh, told me, you know, I would rather marry a Jew than a Catholic. <laughs> and I didn't want to tell her that that's lucky because that's that's what you've done. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. But how Miklos had been passing as a Presbyterian, I yes, guess. Yes, and I attended Presbyterian. Oh, church. did you? I, I thought well, you, you see, in Princeton in those days, uh, you had to have... Uh, uh, your freshman and sophomore years, you had to have chits that half of the Sundays you attended some kind of church. Uh-huh. And so I went to different churches. My favorites were the Quakers. I uh-huh. liked the Quakers. <laughs> I liked that they sat there silently. And I believe that that way, maybe, there is spiritual experience. But in the Presbyterian Church, I did not see spiritual experience. But what did you think of having to disguise your identity? Well, uh, I mean, to be truthful, I, my plan was that I would stop being Jewish regardless of my uncle. Why? But why would I be Jewish? I mean, what makes me Jewish? I mean, what? I mean, I, I, I was Jewish for 20 years, enough. Mm. So I thought that at the border, the other side of the border, I'm not Jewish. In, in, in your book, you write that you weren't religious um, and that um, for you, Judaism was almost a negative identity in the sense that it defined what you weren't more than what you were, that you weren't Hungarian, that you weren't Christian. Well, uh, religion was something for which you get killed. Mm, for which you get killed. And I mean, why should I be Jewish? I mean, what makes me Jewish? By the way, I mean, this is an issue which occupies me to this day. I mean, I, I you know, nowadays, I more than accept my Jewish identity, as you know. I uh, have a Holocaust chair, and I am uh, completing a book on the history of the Holocaust. Uh, but how am I Jewish? <laughs> um, I mean, well, I'm thinking of something you wrote I mean, in, in you the know, book. I mean, if you were Lutheran, you can say, all right, I'm not Lutheran. I will stop being Lutheran. I mean, even as a, I recall as a small boy, uh, this disturbed me, um, that Jews believe such and such. Uh, Muslims believe in such and such. Now, how could it be that the truth value of a proposition is the consequence that I was born in this household rather than in that household, uh, I am Jewish because I happen to be born to Jewish parents, but, but. <laughs> well, you um, you I want to be free. I'm perfectly happy to be nothing. You mean no category? No. Um, well, you wrote that your sense of Jewish identity after the Holocaust, at least in Hungary, I, if I've got this right, was that it wasn't so much following a certain set of laws or a religion that it really had to do with the memory of Auschwitz itself, of, of the Holocaust itself. Which is an odd way to derive an identity. You're a scholar of the Holocaust. As you say, you're writing a book about it. Um, Lasting it, next to the last chapter. Oh, wow. 
We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, when did the Holocaust become known as the Holocaust, and when did it take on the dimensions of this defining event? You're absolutely right. This is a, this is a mysterious thing, that immediately after the war, this was not an issue. But somehow, the 1970s, this came to uh, occupy a space which it has not before. It, it's a remarkable phenomenon that the great book was written by Roald Hilberg. Uh, he finished, I think, in 1961, uh, which has not been surpassed. Entitled? Uh, the Destruction of the European Jews. And uh, he had trouble having it published. This is not a topic we are interested mm. in. Hmm. And wow. now, of course, there's several editions. Wow. And, 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 and it is the great book. Now, why is that, that as it recedes in the past, it grows in our uh, consciousness and ultimately came to be the very definition of ultimate evil? Uh, well, when did it uh, get a, a name, the Holocaust or Shoah, that, that, that helped enshrine it uh, at this scale? It's gradual. Uh -huh. um, first, perhaps, in the United States, then in Europe, and only moderately in Eastern Europe. Uh -huh. I mean, in, in, East, in, in Hungary, uh, up to very recently, there was no such course as the history of the Holocaust. That's also an interesting story how this came about, which... It's an interesting story. May I? Oh, absolutely. Well, I was the director of the UC Center in Hungary, uh, Education Abroad Program. And uh, uh, one of the people who taught for us, someone by the name of Kalai, a, a very impressive man, a scholar of literature and philosophy, who taught for us, and we became good friends. And he received a Fulbright. Uh, and uh, because of connection with me, he chose to come to Santa Cruz with his wife and uh, with his uh, uh, three girls. And the amount of money which Fulbright paid was very difficult to live on. I think he paid, I think, I don't remember exactly, but I think 2500 a month, and out of this, he had to pay fifteen hundred for apartment. So, uh, Murray Baumgarten, you know, professor at UCSC, right? Yeah. And he and I were teaching the Holocaust class, and it came to us that we would hire uh, Geza's wife, Kota, as a TA. This was not easy because we couldn't hire her because she didn't have the right visa. Geza had the right visa because Geza was teaching here in Fulbright. So Murray, who was brilliant, um, had the idea that we will send money, $5,000, to Qatar's university, which was a reformed, very reactionary university, Christian reform, and they will give her the money with the understanding that Kata is here to learn how to teach a class on the Holocaust. And Kata, who is, by the way, an absolutely wonderful woman, speaks absolutely flawless English, went back to Hungary and started to teach a class on the Holocaust. Wow. 
Uh-huh. And she became a major Holocaust scholar. <laughs> She's not Jewish. Uh-huh. Uh, and so her university now a class on the Holocaust. That's how it all started. Well, tell me about your book. And, and, and um, in an event that so many people have studied, so many people have written and commented right. on, what, what have you been able to, to do with this subject? Well, it's more of an extended essay. Uh-huh. Uh, my interest is not uh, so much on the on the extermination camp level. My interest is how could such thing come about? What were the preconditions? And I start out with the proposition that there were three major uh, preconditions. One was modern anti-Semitism, modern as opposed to age-old anti-Semitism, meaning the remarkable phenomenon is that the Jews in Western Europe became, in the course of the 19th century, enormously successful. The average German income, Jewish German income at the end of the century was three and a half times. So the first... Three and a half times out of the rest of the population? Right. Uh Uh-huh. And before that, before 1900, it was not the case. So uh, the first third of my book is how come the Jews became so successful. And my point here is that the Holocaust couldn't have happened without this. The Nazis had to understand, believe, and also depict the Jews as a grave danger. And indeed... um, the notion that the Jews had an inordinate role to play in economy, in culture, life, there was enough basis that this could be. It was, of course, wrong. I mean, the Jews did not dominate the German economy. The Jews, by the way, did dominate Hungarian economy, but Mm. certainly before the First World War. So that's the first third of the book. The second precondition was that uh, a lunatic group had to take control of the machine of the modern state. And my stress here is not that the Nazis were evil, which of course they were, by any standard of morality, but they were crazy. Mm-hmm. It, this is lunacy. I mean, once they invade Poland, they want to make half of Poland, the western half, into a German colony, and presumably exterminate the Pope. The matter is not that whether this is the nice thing to do, but this is a crazy idea. So there, the second half of the book, my interest is uh, is how the Nazis saw the world. And I believe that Nazi propaganda is important because this is the way they really saw the world. They meant it. And the third precondition, of course, was the war. No war, no Holocaust. It could happen only in wartime. Hmm. Up to that point, the Nazi problem is, what shall we do with the Jews? And they come up with all sorts of lunatic schemes, sending them to Madagascar, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, But even in the first two years of the war, they still don't think that we are going to kill them all. We will send them, uh, once the Madagascar plan falls through, we will send them beyond the Ural Mountains. And and there, in the third third of the book, my interest is uh, 
um, how come that in different countries the success of extermination was different, and to what extent can we correlate it with pre-existing anti-Semitism? And my point is, not that much. No. Mm -hmm. These are separate. Mm. The question, obviously, that haunts a lot of us is, how could seemingly normal people, aside from that part that are organically pathological, that I have real mental illness, how do they become infected by what you called craziness, you know, madness? Well, it's enough if a few of them are, uh, because uh, it is a human trait that we walk the path of least resistance. And once the Nazis take control, we face a different gestalt. Um, uh, protest is out of the question, because you tell yourself that I couldn't help in any case. I mean, I would be punished. I would share their fate. Uh, and then, as they, as people do uh, dreadful things to other human beings, they come to believe that those people deserve it, because otherwise we couldn't justify it for ourselves. And the more they kill, the more they hate the Jews. It's a descending spiral. And ultimately, it's, it's madness. It's, it's lunacy. I think you've just described a phenomenon that people have seen in a lot of circumstances uh, where people maybe initially even might be forced to do harm to others, gradually come to hate the victims of their acts because of course. It, it's the only way. It's, it's, we need it. Yeah, to exculpate I mean, themselves. How can I think yeah. of myself just uh, killing uh, little children uh, who did obviously no harm to anyone? I mean, what kind of human being I am. Mm, exactly, yeah. Well, you, you've, you've obviously traveled a long and very interesting road um, that ended up in the United States. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that transition. The, the guy who has, has lived under not just one, but two totalitarian governments, I mean, two major versions of totalitarianism in the 20th century, Nazism and communism, comes to the U.S., and a guy who's temperamentally is, is a realist, as we said. I won't call you a pessimist, but I'll call you a, a realist. But you ended up— Pessimism he, means so many different things. Yeah, but you still—you come from a, a, a part of the world, Eastern Europe, Hungary, that's known to have a, you know, a less than romantic or less than a rosy picture of the world, and you end up in sun-drenched California— at UC Santa Cruz, at near its founding, right, which 1966. I like, which I like very much. Yeah. I am a Santa Cruz patriot. Yeah. <laughs> a UCSC patriot. How does the person you are adapt to um, a culture that really does put the stress on um, a sunny disposition and smiles and, you know. That I don't do. <laughs> when they ask me how I am, I always tell them all my various illnesses. <laughs> Even if it in, in in the safe way that the checker asks, how are you? <laughs> then I say, well, um, I assume that my uh, cancer of the larynx will not return. <laughs> um, so they always get more than they bargained for. <laughs> so my Americanization has limits. Mm. I've not been a complete success. <laughs> but nobody minds me. <laughs> I can do I can be whatever. How does it feel to you coming to the U.S. And, and hearing, you know, in the 60s and maybe 70s from the left wing, words like fascist being thrown around a lot? And now to hear the words like socialist and communist being thrown around a lot of by, by the right wing. I think 
silliness is all around us. Silliness, silliness, silliness. The fascists are not fascists. The communists are not communists. They don't know what they are talking about. It's just silliness. But um, silliness is always with us. There is a certain quota of silliness in this world. Uh, the form is constantly changing. The, the sum total is a constant. Silly it may be, Peter, but you remain uh, convinced that, that things are getting better in some way. Technology, technology, technology. technology. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Peter Kenez is Professor Emeritus of History at UC Santa Cruz. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.